Welcome to episode 29 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's fastest growing film photography podcast. I am your host, Mike Ekman, and welcome to the first official episode of summer, or if you're Theo, then it's winter. Hey Theo, how did that work as a child during Christmas? Did Santa live at the South Pole and bring presents wearing shorts and a t-shirt? There is actually a version of Santa wearing shorts and a t-shirt, and he's got kangaroos pulling his sleigh. So uh, we, we do we do adapt a little bit. From Yellow Springs, Ohio, where it very much does snow at Christmas, is Paul Reibel. Christmas in July is coming soon, so will you be putting up a tree this summer? You know, I thought uh, I thought maybe I would just go chop a couple down uh, to uh, keep us warm next winter. And finally, fresh off his audition for Jeopardy, is our Camerosity trivia expert, Anthony Rue. How did trivia night go tonight, Anthony? Well, before I left, we were in fourth place. And after I left, I don't think we were in the top 10. Oh, no. Too bad. All right. We're back with another episode. More gas, more guests, hopefully not a lot of Nikon talk. What wormholes do you think will go down this week? All right. It looks like we have a couple people in the waiting room. So why don't we get started and let them in? I I see some familiar faces. Uh, Mark Faulkner, welcome back. James Allen is is here with us once again. Welcome back, James. Thank you. Andrew Smith, welcome to the show. Uh, you How want you to introduce doing? yourself? Hi, I'm uh, Andrew Smith. I'm, uh, I'm a big collector of mainly Nikon rangefinders. I'm pretty active on a lot of the Facebook groups, and I have a moderately popular YouTube channel where I do some reviews and overviews on a lot of that type of gear. Where are you from? Uh, El Paso, Texas. El Paso, Texas. That's All right. So how long have you had your YouTube channel for? A little over a year. Not all that long, so... And you just do kind of reviews of the cameras you have in your collection? Yeah, exclusively. That's that's all I have to work with. So yeah, it's cool. Honestly, I um, had thought of accompanying some of my reviews on my website with a YouTube channel. And I just got, came to the reality of I just am not set up well to do video. This The podcast, in a way, came as a result of me wanting to try something different, but not doing the YouTube channel. But that is kind of a fun medium. And I've seen personally that other YouTube camera review channels out there aren't the best. You know, I see a lot of like real sloppy work of people who just want to rotate a camera in front of their computer and don't really know a ton about it. So I have to definitely check out your channel. All right. All right. And I see a face I haven't seen in a long time. I think it's been the cocaine and waffles is the last time we saw Cheyenne Morrison. Welcome to the show, Cheyenne. Hi, Mike. Yeah, I was uh, on a podcast, but I couldn't get my camera working and Oh, yeah, I've got it working anyway. So yeah, good to yeah. see you in the flesh. We can see you there. For anybody who hasn't listened to one of our older episodes, the first time we had Cheyenne on, you were calling <laughs> from a client's house. And yeah, uh, the crack house. At, yeah, at one point we, <laughs> we joked around that he was uh Walter White from Breaking Bad. Uh instead of you know making drugs, he was uh, reviewing cameras in people's houses. So that was a fun episode. For anybody yeah. who's with us, all 20, this is episode 29, so it's pretty exciting. Uh, I see, it looks like Jess Ibarra is in the waiting room too, so let's let her in as well. But we have a good selection of people here, so I uh, want to welcome everybody. I don't know, I thought maybe uh, we could all sort of recap what we've been up to the past couple weeks. I had the pleasure two weeks ago today, no, last week, I'm sorry. Last week, I went to visit our uh, friend Dan Tamarkin. Um, he was on a recent episode up at, I, I went to visit him at his shop to marking camera. Um, he's they're in a kind of a new location. I had never been to the old one before, but it was really, really cool to actually see his location, see 
just the amazing number of Leicas he's got. Uh, I brought some stuff that I wanted to show off to him and he was able to give me some more information. Uh, he had, he had said he would try and join us for one of the uh, next few episodes. So maybe he'll pop in here maybe not, who knows. But then after that, I was already in Chicago. And for those of you who know me, I don't go to Chicago very often because I simply hate the traffic, but central camera had reopened. They're back in their original location. So I kind of made it a point to uh, drive down through that area. And um, continuing with my hatred for downtown Chicago, I also hate parking. So I illegally parked in front of the store just long enough to pop out and see what there was to see. And uh, they had a sale on Fuji 200, the three packs of the 36 millimeter for um, $15 for a three pack, which in, in today's market is like, you know, that's a steal. I remember the days when you could get the four packs for $12, $13. So to get a three pack now of the new Fuji 200 for 15 bucks was uh, a pretty good price, but it was cool to see the store back up for anybody who's been there before, you know, it, it's, it's a shell of what it was. I mean, they've done a great job of restoring the building, but the, the walls lined with cool old camera equipment, it's all gone. You know, they had that fire, but it was really cool to see them back up. It was surprisingly busy people dropping off films. So their business, I think is doing well. Uh, I saw Don, Don Flesh there. Didn't really get a chance to say hello because he was kind of surrounded with people, but it, it was nice to kind of get around to that area and uh, and see that the shop is back up. But um, Paul, any anything interesting you've done in the past weeks, sir, last show? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm fixing stuff. Fixing you know, I stuff. To, yeah, I, uh, I had traded a, a, a lens with Gilligan, who is still seems to be on the island somewhere. <laughs> um, Whatever happened to him? <laughs> I, 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 I talked to him. He's, he's around. He's, he's trying to move. <laughs> We're talking about Aiden Dean. Uh, yeah. I traded him a, a lens for an Alpha 11E and a 50 millimeter macro Switar, neither of which were in the best of conditions. So I, I sent the lens to Radu to get him to, to Radu Lasaro to get him to tighten it up and and then uh, I said, hey, I got this 11E that needs a little work on the meter. And he said, well, send it too. So I, I'm shipping that out to him tomorrow. So I, I think he lives in Naples, Florida. So I think he's uh, he probably wants to buy a bigger boat. And so he's waiting to get all my stuff uh, uh, so that he can uh, so he can afford this bigger boat. Now, doesn't Radu specialize in Alpa? Isn't that like his primary brand? Yeah, he, uh, he worked for Carl Heights when Carl Heights was a distributor for Alpa, Robot, Tessina, Getzo Tripods, uh, and a few other really odd European uh, brands. So he uh, he was there. He was he was uh, Carl Heitz's repairman, and he's repaired a number of uh, of uh, Alpa pieces for me. And I know he did your your contacts one. Yeah, he did, and I still love it. It's in fact, it's right here. Uh, I've probably shot on probably my fifth roll of film in it. And, you know, I fell, I'm working on a review for it. So I'll share my thoughts uh, more thoroughly in that. But I fell victim to uh, when you research the old contacts for anybody who's just not familiar, the original contacts went head to head with the original Leica, where the Leica was was a relatively simple camera Zeiss went all they went full German with the contacts I mean they added so many more features back then their lenses were were better than anything lights was able to make and they they made this super heavily over-engineered camera uh that even they could barely keep running you know and the, the camera was constantly revised 
the the official model is just contacts one, but there's something like six major variants that Jim McKeown created sort of a, a sub-model A through F. But even within those sub-models or sometimes sub-sub-models and versions with, with you know, features that overlap it, it's kind of a mess. And when they re-released the contacts two and three, um, it was Herbert Nerwin that sort of re redesigned the camera. Essentially, as I said, all right, we need something we can sell. This contacts isn't selling, you know, lights is kicking our ass. So he, he kind of kept the similar shutter, the vertical, you know, the garage door shutter, but changed a ton of it. And uh, every, as we know, the context two and threes, you know, went on to be very popular, well-regarded cameras. But I always kind of have this thought that the original context would be a miserable camera to use. It's much boxier. It's got some strange ergonomics. And ha after having a chance to, to not only shoot one, but one that's been recently CLA'd, it's an amazing camera. I really do like it, you know, and it's unfortunate that they're so hard to come by. It, they're even more unfortunate to find ones that are in working condition because, you know, like you said, Radu could do it, but there's very, very few people in the world who will even touch those original contacts. Even guys like Mark Hansen, who will CLA a contacts two and three, won't touch a one. He says that even though the shutters are similar, they are not exactly the same. There are differences. The original version of it is more complicated. So I, I realize that I have kind of a an, an oddball that people aren't likely to come across, but it, in the rare event, anybody listening gets a chance to shoot an original working contacts one don't fall victim to, well, the twos and threes must be significantly better because those original cameras are really, really fun to shoot. And, and I've been thoroughly enjoying shooting mine. So I'll have a review for that up soon. Does the, does the fact that they're so hard to, to fix and work on affect their price? Because I noticed the other day, there was one that went here locally for you know, what I would consider some ridiculously low amount, like $120 or $130 um, on eBay. But I, I sort of was a little bit hesitant and in the end didn't bid for it because purely because if they don't work, uh, they're, they're very expensive to get them working again. Yeah, I've if someone got a contacts one body for 130, they got really, really lucky. Um, it seems the going rate for the bodies without a lens in non-working condition Typically seems to start at six to 700 bucks US. Uh, right. You get like anything, the lens make adds the value considerably. Those cameras are kind of weird because everybody wants the fast, the 1.5 lenses. But if you're actually a shooter, the, the, the two, two, eight Tessar and the three, five Tessars uh, are most people consider them actually be sharper. The one five sonar lenses back then were incredibly soft, especially wide open, and they had soft coatings, so they're almost impossible to find today with good optics. But, I, you know, I don't know what every collector would think, but there were not that many made, so they're definitely more rare. But I think to find a nice looking contacts one with a lens, even if it doesn't work, the prices are still pretty high because I think most collectors just assume they don't work. Yeah. Certainly to find one that is like, I don't know if I were to sell this, what I could get for it because it's just so uncommon. I mean, I would literally have to go in and sell it as film tested, CLA guaranteed to work, you know, but even then that's risky because when you say guaranteed to work, it's still a 90 year old camera, you know, yeah. and you, you, you get that wrong buyer who takes you literally and expects it to be like a brand new camera, you know, e even a CLA by the most reputable guy in the world, isn't going to make a camera perfect. 
So um, to, to find a value for something like what I have here, I honestly have no clue because I think it's worth a lot. I, I know it's rare, but the value of the market's going to be hard to pick because there's just so few of them that are in that good of shape. I mean, that's the kind of camera where even if you found it and the seller said it worked, you should assume it's going to stop working very soon. Whereas hopefully, hopefully mine, you know, Paul, I think even if you came across the contacts one, you wouldn't be foolish enough to say guaranteed to work. Oh, no, no. I mean, there's two kinds of contacts, twos and threes, ones that have just been repaired and ones that don't work. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, you just got to assume they don't work. I mean, unless, yeah. unless they were just put me off. They've been repaired, they're not going to work. Yeah. Hong, uh, June, he recently got back a contacts 2A, so a post-war model that he sent out to Mark Hansen, who CLA'd it, and he says it's wonderful too. Mm -hmm. But even he commented in one of his posts that, you know, he's shot other working ones before. And the difference between a later contacts that's been CLA'd versus one that is working but hasn't been CLA'd is night and day. And it's it's a ticking time bomb camera, which is a shame because they are nice. And that's another, for, for today's collector slash shooter, that's another reason Leicas are a little bit more desirable because they're simpler. They're easier to make working. There are far more people that can CLA a Leica than will even touch yeah. a contacts. You know, I mean, Yuzhen Ying is, is what, six months behind now, Paul? Uh, yeah, not quite that much. Four, four to five months. Four to five months. And yeah. he, he was one of the fastest people for a while, too. Yeah, yeah. He raised his price to try to, to uh, slow his business down slow people down. Yeah. <laughs> work. I don't think dag is taking any work, any new work anymore. I, I contacted him a while ago and he wasn't, he doesn't work on uh, Nikon stuff anymore at all. He only works on Leica. I know that. And Minox. And Minox. Yeah. And honestly, if I had to guess, I don't think that's a slight against Nikon. I think there's just so much work with Leicas. If, if that were me, if I was getting up there in age and I had a business where I have more customers than I can possibly take on work for, I'm probably going to want to narrow down what I'm going to take too, because it just, it's easier that way. I think that's happening through sales as well, because I was talking to a, a local, a local seller, a local Aussie Paul, as we call him, um, who, who sells cameras here and he sells all the high end stuff. And he actually mentioned to me that he was actually just going to concentrate on selling Leica items now because he just can't keep up with the demand of the high-end yeah. stuff. It's just a choice of what's easier to, to push through. Yeah, I'm going to make a prediction. In, in 10 years, I don't think there's going to be almost anybody left who's going to be able to repair contacts, but there'll be people learning to repair Leicas. That's yeah, a shame, but you. that's just a fact. As far as like what you said, Mike, about the contacts, I think it's like, um, Betamax and VHS. Betamax was better, but VHS just had the format. It went, they had better marketing, yada, yada, yada. And people went with the product that they went with. And that's just history. And Leica, they got better mythology. That's, that's it. It's not a better camera. If I can follow up on something that Cheyenne just said, my rabbit hole for the week has been, uh, I picked up a Nikonos 4A from, from Paul. And it's a camera that was just sort of like a stopgap model in the Nikonos line uh, between the three and the five. It was only produced for two years in the eighties. And right now it is, I think I got the last two sets of O-rings specifically for that camera <laughs> in the United States. And I called every Nikonos service center in the United States 
And I was both trying to find somebody that would do uh, a CLA because there are internal O-rings on these underwater cameras that are not user replaceable, like on the, the winding stem. They can only be done by a, a technician during a, a CLA. I called every number, and I used to work in the dive industry, and I called every number that I had to contact for and found out that either the, like there was a guy at Southern Nikonos that was like the guy to go for uh, passed away last year with a long queue of cameras uh, that were all just yeah. boxed up and shipped back. And I talked to a guy in San Diego from a shop that is like one of the last two places in California that will service the Nikonos. And they're saying that on the, the ones, the twos, and the threes, you buy it. If it works, it works. If it doesn't, you throw it away and you get another one. Because uh, they just, they don't even have the O-rings for them anymore. You know, so other than the five, uh, I don't think it's going to be possible to get a Nikonos serviced. And those O-rings, you know, they're going to they're going to give way. You know, at some point, they're just small rubber O-rings. And maybe you can find an exact match from a master car. But if you don't get a perfect match, it's going to flood on you. If it floods, you're toast. Mark Faulkner, you know more about 3D printing than anybody that I know. Is there any movement towards 3D printing like gasket material? I mean, is that even possible? Yeah, I mean, certainly there are some flexible type filaments that could be used for that. The issue is they would need some sort of post-processing to make sure all of the layers are merged together enough that it would not leak water. Yeah, so you'd have to do some post-processing, which is certainly doable. There are a lot of filaments where specifically you can print something and you put it in the oven and anneal it so that it becomes stronger. I think that would also work for gasket material as well. Yeah, because you said there's ways where you could make metal, where you make a mold and then you do a second step to actually turn it into metal or something so maybe you know for anthony you know there might be some innovations coming along the line for 3d printable gaskets and that might help anthony didn't you say that that last gasket you bought it was a display model or something like that yeah it was uh two two sets of display models so it's it's two sets of four o-rings yeah and you're just going to keep hearing these stories um i mean jessica's on here i want to ask her a couple questions too but anybody listening to this episode I, I cannot say it enough. If you have a camera that you want to keep working uh, and you have the desire to get it fixed, now is the time to do it. Yeah. These people are disappearing fast. We know Chris Sherlock recently retired. Uh, I do not think Mark Hama is taking on work anymore. Mark was there. Hey, Jess is quite young. Guy. I don't think she's going anywhere for a while. She's not going anywhere, <laughs> but I don't have the knowledge that those guys have. No, and right. Sadly, but truly, a lot of them, they're not just retiring, they're dying. They're and they're dying, dying yeah. before yeah. the secret. We, uh, as, as myself, as Viva Film, we're trying our best to gather as much information, manuals, notes at the moment to try to better understand. But there is a lot of cameras that manuals weren't even available back in the time. They weren't even like a thing. So there was just people that specialized at the factory or a particular repair centers that just knew what to do with the camera. Well, that's Radu. I mean... Yeah, he worked for the for Carl Heights and everything he knows is in his head. And I, yeah. I would be willing to bet that he's not going to write it down anywhere. Yeah. And, and a lot of those things just come from experience. Like, you know, you have to open the you have to open the camera, be in it to be able to, you know, troubleshoot um, and work the problem out. But there is actually ways of making O-rings, actually. We do, we do use, I don't know if I have it here, but the belt material uh, for projectors. 
uh, and we cut it to a specific size and weld it like we weld the material for the belts, for the projectors. So we can make a specific O-rings. It's a little bit time consuming to get them to the right um, size, um, but you can. There is possible. Someone had a question? Yeah, it was me. I actually, you were talking about the uh, Leicas, and I mean, not Leicas, Alpas. I actually have an Alpa 6 I got a little while ago. And I test it with some film and the shutter like claps really bad where you get the sort of like the image is like the right third is all black. And I've been looking for somebody to repair it. And I just, I haven't found many people. So would anybody have a good suggestion for that? Radu. And what's his uh, name or website? Could you provide that somewhere? 3rcamera.com. All right. I'll have to look him up because I'd like to get it repaired. And like you've said, there's just not many people he's who do work. the guy. Now yeah. he's backed up. And I will tell you, he's not the best at responding quickly. So shoot him an email, send him some pictures. Paul, I don't know. Will, will telling Radu that he heard it from us help? It, no, it won't, it won't hurt because he and I have become, we've become. Yeah. I, I've got a, I got some good Radu stories, but it's three, the number three R. Right. Yeah. Camera.com. I think that was the one website I stumbled across that looked like they yeah. actually, yeah. I haven't emailed him yet. He, so he's, he specializes in Alpha. So he's not just some guy who will take it. That's the guy to go to for an Alpha. A, a few years ago, I had a, a, a macro Switar, which is a, quite a valuable lens. Mm-hmm. Uh, that wasn't it wasn't focusing properly. The, the focus wheel spun on it rather than engaged the, the helicoid. Um, so I had it on eBay as is for like $900 or something. So I thought, well, I'm going to see if Radu can fix it. So I, I sent Radu an email and I linked the uh, eBay sale to, to it so he could see what it was. And uh, he sends me back a message, says, yeah, I can fix it. It cost about $25. He said, but don't bother. I just bought it. <laughs> so he bought my <laughs> as-is lens so he could repair it and put it in and sell it himself. So <laughs> I have uh, I, I keep telling him he, he owes me for that. All I have is the uh, the Schneider Optics, the uh, Xenon lens for it. So I know those aren't quite as sought after, but from what I've seen, it's actually a pretty good lens. So It's a good lens. The other, they yeah. also, there was another uh, a brand that were the Schneiders, the Kearns, Mm-hmm. And the old Delft and the old Delfts were uh, primarily, I think, uh, telephotos, maybe wide angles. There, there might have been a 50 also, but mostly they were uh, uh, the lower end type lenses. Paul, what was the Alpa lens you just adapted that you love? That was the Macro Switar. The Macro Switar. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I found uh, Photodiox makes an adapter to adapt Alpa mount to, uh, to Sony. And you have the same adapter, I think, Mike. Yeah, I do. Uh-huh. I showed it to you when I was at your house a couple weeks That's ago. That's right. You were using it on the, the Panagore? No, it's the Macro uh, Killfit, Macro Killar. Killfit, kill yeah. The Killfit, yeah, that's it. I'm sorry. The Killfit, Macro Killar. I really, really love that lens. Um, for, for anybody who's been to my site, every review I've done of a camera, the beauty pictures of the camera are shot with that lens. But uh, I'm shooting digital images, but still through the lens of a 1950s Alpa lens. And I, I love how how close does the mac- your macro lens go, Paul? Oh, it goes uh, very close, uh, three inches. Three inches. It's about 120 turns to get it to go from there yeah. to the close focus. I mean, it- the kill fits. There's a Model D and a Model E. When you look at the le- um the, the the beauty ring, if you see a D, it goes down to two inches. If it's the E, it goes down to four inches. So it looks like yours is right in the middle of that. But that's a, Andrew, that's a good lens to look for too, if you want to get something beside the Schneider. But I've already 
a little out of my price range, but <laughs> it is, it is. But you know what? They do show up from time to time. Uh, Theo's got one there too. I mean, I have seen those things show for two to 300 bucks. Um, I know that, you know, depending on your budget, that might not be a lot, but it's, it really is a fantastic lens. They adapt really well to digital. They make the most common, uh, what did you mount it to Paul? Was it Sony? Yeah. A seven R two. Okay. Yeah. So I have the Sony adapter too. a side note. When I was getting Sony adapters, I noticed some of them say next adapter and some of them say Sony e-mount. And I was like, well, what the hell's the difference? How come some say one and some say there was the same thing. Yeah. There was. <laughs> I had to learn that the hard way though. So Andrew, that, that Alpha six is worth repairing. I mean, that's a, yeah, that's nice a camera. It'd be a lot of fun to use. And, uh, I've enjoyed it so far and cosmetically it's in great shape. I see a lot of them are not in very good shape, but the, the lens and the camera are both in, and even the case it had the original case, they're all in almost perfect shape. I, I assume somebody bought it and just never really used it, which is a shame because I know back in the day they were very expensive. Yeah. The 11E that I have is a Chrome one and they only made 750 of those cameras. Uh, oh, they nice. came out then with the 11EL, which had a little bit different light meter. Uh, and they didn't make many of those either. So, I mean, that was the last of the uh, last of the real Alpha mount cameras. Does the six have the rangefinder also? It does have the rangefinder window, but it, it doesn't have any sort of like actual rangefinder focusing mechanism. Okay. And it's just stuck at fifty because I think the sevens have a little knob and it'll kind of zoom in and do I think like thirty-five, fifty, and like one thirty-five or something. I could be. Well, I'll tell you, I had a seven at one point in time, and it did have the working rangefinder, and I hated it. It sounds really cool on paper. Whoa, an SLR that also has a rangefinder. Yeah, you're, you're probably not going to use it. I mean, I, I'm sure there are going to be some Alpha fans that will tell me I'm crazy and that there's good good reasons to use the rangefinder on it, but uh, I, I never enjoyed it. So while we're talking about all these lenses, I, I have a lens here I bought off eBay a while ago. This is one of my favorite lenses, but I have hardly, I have not found hardly any information on it. And it is a, a Camora lens. I don't know how well you can see it, but it's a Nikon S mount. And it's a it's 35 nice f, it's a 35 f 2.8 but i just i Kimura was Kimura was one of the first third party yeah. really good japanese lens makers you you won't what focal length is that it's a 35 millimeter f 2.8 they made a lot of wide angle it's hard to find 50 millimeter Kimuras cuz mm -hmm. the whole the whole reason they existed was to appeal to people who needed other focal lengths obviously we know all the a list you know, Canon, Minolta, Nikon, you know, Azahi, uh, if they made cameras, they also made good lenses. But in terms of like Sigma or uh, um, Tamron, you know, like today, those are your your big name third party lens makers. Kimura was one of the first really, really good uh, lens makers. Now, to be fair, I don't have extensive knowledge in their whole lineup, but from what I've read, and I, I have one Kimura lens here that I just absolutely adore. So that's, I think that's a fantastic lens you got there. They made them in, in L39 and, and yeah. S. Those were the two mounts that they primarily made for. And they made it because Canon was, was selling L39 and the, a number of other, of course, NECA, the holy host of other Japanese late 50s, mid 60s uh, L39 mount cameras. So Kimura was tapping into that market. They did not make as many of the Nikon S mount though. So that's that's sort of a rare sort of a rare piece. It's less common. Well, I mean, there simply were less Nikon rangefinders. I mean, yes. We, yes. you know, we we talked in a previous episode. There were over 800,000 Leica M3s made 
and uh, only 133,000 total of all the Nikon rangefinder models combined. And, and we've talked about this too, so I won't repeat too much of it, but Andrew, that lens will work on a contacts as well. I've heard, I don't own a contact, so I haven't tried it, but I, I was really impressed by it because I've compared it to the Nikon, the, um, the 35 F 2.5 and the Kimura is vastly yeah. better. There's barely any comparison, right. such a different quality. It's amazing. On the lens, anywhere on the lens, does it have an N or a C on it or is it? Uh... It, it does actually, let's see. It has an N if I remember correctly. So if you look on the lens barrel, I, I know you're probably not going to be able to see it, but it says Japan right there. Yeah. And there's an N right there. Hey, that means it is calibrated to the Nikon rather than the contacts. Yeah. Right. I haven't seen any that were actually labeled as being calibrated for contacts, but I don't, I don't think they're all that common. So it's hard to really judge. And the difference is what Paul's talking about. You will not see it 35 millimeter. It is, it is so negligible. Um, I don't think depth of field will completely cover the differences. It's, it's more of an issue when you go longer than 50 millimeter, like an mm -hmm. 8.5 or a 135 or something where it's, there's a huge difference. But uh, if you ever do get a contacts, feel free to throw that on there. And another cool thing too, is anything other than 50 millimeter on Nikons uses the external bayonet, mm -hmm. right? Do you also shoot digital at all? Yeah, I have a Sony A7 and I have a really crude adapter that's made from like, I think an old Soviet made camera. That can kind oh, of you do have one. Okay. Yeah, it doesn't well, work too well, but it works. If you, if, you, if you buy lottery tickets, buy one. <laughs> and if you, hit, if you happen to hit the right numbers, look for one of Amadeo's adapters. Yeah, I've heard of those. Yeah. Amadeo Maselli makes uh, their hands yeah. fun and they are absolutely works of art. Yeah, my, my friend Eric has Luis in... Um, the Netherlands, he had a lot of like uh, lenses and he's like, oh, it's so expensive. It's so expensive. And I said, look, just get one. And after he got one, he was like so amazed. He never stopped talking about it. He's, and it's a really great story about him, how he makes them as well. He's in Venezuela. Yeah. And it's all cottage industry and smuggling bits and things across the border and currency problems and it's amazing that he makes them and sells them from Venezuela. He actually lives in Florida now. Uh, ah, yeah, shop, that's right. Yeah. His shop is still in Venezuela. And when he's they getting were it having, all made there. Yeah. Well, he's, he's, he's been struggling to, to feed his employees because uh, Jesus. The, the supply issues on food and everything else in Venezuela was pretty grim for a long time. But he's a good guy yeah. and it's a really a high quality product. Yeah, totally. A good budget tip for you or anybody who has a wide angle or even a telephoto Nikon or contacts lens and they want to adapt it to digital is contacts, digital or Nikon lens mount to digital adapters are extremely expensive. And the reason is because they have a built-in helicoid. You have to get all those parts for the entire thing to work. However, you only need the helicoid for 50 millimeter lenses. So if you're looking to adapt like your Kimura, which is a wide angle, you only need an adapter that has the outer bayonet. And um, Fotasi, F-O-T-A-S-Y, makes a lens mount that's Nikon S. This is my Fuji adapter, but they make it for other uh, digitals too. And it only has the external bayonet. All right. And I think this, cool. this is like an $18 adapter. Oh, that's good. So yeah. it's way cheaper. And, and this isn't the Amadeos are very good, but there are other ones you mentioned early, Andrew, where people take like a broken Kiev and they yeah. hack off the mount and they turn that into an adapter. You can find those on eBay 
for like 70, 80 bucks and they probably work. I'm sure they're rough, but you only need that level of complexity if you're trying to adapt a 50 millimeter lens to digital. But if you're going to try and adapt anything that uses the external bayonet, hell, they even made uh, the Nikkor 50 millimeter F1.1 that super, super fast lens. Mm -hmm. Some of them did use the internal bayonet, but some use the externals. So for anybody who ever comes across any contacts or Nikon or even Kiev that uses the external bayonet and you want to try it on digital, just get an adapter that only has the external bayonet and you could use it. So you know, the eBay seller on those is rainbow imaging. Okay. Uh, and they, uh, I've bought a lot of adapters from them. They're, they're good people. And uh, I haven't seen that adapter, Mike. That's pretty cool. That's uh, Amazon. I got it from Amazon. I want to say I paid like 18, but no, I didn't get it recently. It's been a while. So I assume they're still available. And this one is for Fuji X mounts. Um, I, I know that they had them for Sony and all the other typical common cool. ones, but way cheaper. Silly question though. Does that mean the, the Kiev lenses, the, the Jupiters and so on would also be adapted with that kind of the, not the Jupiter 8. No, so like, no I meant the 35 millimeter version. Yeah, right. If it's 12 or something, yeah. Anything that uses the external bayonet will, will work with this. Okay. Coming back to Jessica, you know, you were talking about things that you're learning. I know you can't speak for every single person who's getting, who's, who's younger getting into this, but I have to imagine that you're going to make a business decision to only focus on certain things, right? Like it, it probably doesn't make sense for you to go, gee, I'm going to start fixing Alpas now. Right, because well, there's also no parts. Like I, I yeah. can only fix things that I have access to parts, and I, I, I don't. There is still people that can do the cameras very well, and I don't think I will be doing any justice right now. Right. Um, to fix those those sorts of um, models, um, but eventually I would like to be able to grow and maybe teach other people, and then I can maybe learn uh, particularly harder models. Of cameras but right at this point um just trying to concentrate on the more um on the on the kind of cameras that are more popular uh, and easier to find parts because it's happening a lot especially in the last few months because cameras tend to fail in the same spots it's like we used to be able to buy cameras for parts from ebay rather cheap but now they're just very very expensive and the parts that you need have already been taken out of. Yeah. So just to echo again, I can't say this enough. If you have a camera that you think one day you might want to get service, don't wait. You know, and a CLA won't last forever either. You know, every time a camera is CLA, you're really only breathing life into it. You're, you're delaying the inevitable because the cameras will, of there will be a point. Nobody knows how much longer, but at some point, every mechanical camera won't work anymore. Don't get me wrong, like like a thread mounts will will go longer. Your simple leaf shutter comp or you know the folding German cameras. Uh, I think as long as people can make aftermarket bellows to keep comper and prontor shutters going is pretty simple. So maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe you know what was it the uh, the the HG Wells the time machines when the Morlocks uh or, or roam in the earth maybe they're going to be shooting netars and uh uh you know folding cameras or something but uh, i i think I, there will be a new camera soon i think that more than likely than anything i mean we we want to make a camera but we know from for little ears out there that um a company has acquired the rights for k1000 uh and they're working on bringing it back that's cool 
Um, I think it's just a matter of time before one of the big companies, Nikon or Canon, realizes that there is money to be made there. Um, now there is companies in China that you can send a 3D uh, model of a working part, like a part that has working parts in it, and the machine will 3D print it out of metal, working. It will come out as one piece. It will be of one piece of metal that will come out of the machine with the moving working parts. Um, so I think it's just a matter of time now. It's, it's just, you know, it's a race there. And that's where, you know, I, I always get excited about 3D printing and I always love seeing Mark because, you know, he's he knows more about that stuff than I do. And maybe I have more faith than I should, but I, I think at some point that's going to be the answer for a lot of what we're doing. But uh, I have to imagine that any new brand new that is like never before seen camera it's it's not going to have the complexity of, of a context though or a, oh, a contrax no. or you know i think we're very far away from that yeah even <laughs> even like even like a nikon f2 you know to, to have that level of complexity even if they could do it i think it just it wouldn't be worth it you know there's a like when you look at architecture you know you see every house had scalloped you know, crown molding everywhere, banisters, even stuff like you would open up an old radio and the parts you can't even see were nicely designed. You know, they, they just made yeah. everything nice back then. And to, to put that level of care and love and detail into things, um, you're just not going to see that. But, you know, there will certainly be newer options and I'm excited to see what comes out. But uh, I'll, I'll stop repeating myself. But if you have a camera that you're thinking of getting fixed, <laughs> this this to me, I think this is the point. People have been dying off for a while now. Like we've already lost a lot of people, but for the most part, you can still get a Tessina repaired. You can still get a robot repaired. You can still get almost anything repaired. You might pay an arm and a leg and you might have to wait a year for it, but almost everything that's ever been made, you can still get repaired. But I have a feeling we're only a couple years away where there will be, there's going to be whole types, brands of cameras that that is it. Nobody can do it anymore. So don't wait. You will be sorry. Well, if you, you take into account that the crossover line between the adoption of digital and film was 2003, 2005, and pretty quickly after that, film cameras stopped being produced. So anytime from 2004 or five onwards. So if you take a generation, 25 years from there, we're approaching the generational lifespan of all the people that were working and making film cameras. Yeah. They're like that 25 years is fast approaching. And it's all that generational knowledge is they're either stopping, they're retiring or they're dying. So we're pretty much approaching that time period where there's just going to be a whole generation of people kaput. They're just gone. And all the knowledge they've got and people like Jess, congrats to you. Like, Cipher up as much as you can because once it's gone, it's gone and it's just irreplaceable. It, it is also like there needs to be more people that we need to train more people. Like people need to stop being worried about like, you know, passing this, uh, passing this knowledge around and losing something by it. Because if we don't pass it, then we can't, it would be impossible for me to learn every camera. It just, it will be impossible. There's well, thousands and it doesn't make sense camera. for you to do that. I mean, yeah. you know, guys like Radu that can do as many things as he can, they're not the norm. I mean, most people specialized in certain things, you know, yeah. they, they would work on what they knew and it doesn't make financial sense for you to try even to fix everything. So, and I think no, that 
can't. It's impossible. That right. you know, the manuals are hundreds of pages long. Nobody can hold that amount of information on their own. Like and where the where Leicas are, have the benefit is there's so many cameras that are based off of that same design that once you master that uh, a screw mount Leica repair, it's not a stretch to do a whole lot of other models. Yes. Um. You know, I just reviewed the Nika 3L. I know Cheyenne, you're a huge fan of that camera too. I got it sitting right in front of me, but right I didn't talk of- about it. When- <laughs> <laughs> Nika is a really fantastic Japanese company who they, they pretty much just made, you know, screw mount like a, you know, I hate the word copy because they really Ta-da. weren't copies. Yeah, he's got it there. I have a review of it on my site. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very pretty camera. Very nice. Um, Johnny Martyr coined the term Leica training wheels because he's uh he loves the original Barnax and nothing else is even worth his time but every additional feature like the lever wind the m3 style door on the back uh you know a cool feature on that camera that I think a lot of people don't realize it can do is that Nika has an automatic resetting exposure counter yeah it's cool most other bottom loader like if you think about it how did the automatic exposure counters reset you got to open the door well the the nicker that's it's still a bottom loader yeah there's a pin that goes through the entire thickness of the camera and it goes yeah. down to the base plate and when you remove the base plate that's how it resets the exposure counter and you just there yeah. there were other tanac had one um that was similar in design but i don't think it resets the exposure counter that way so while that's a a minor feature i don't know that an automatic resetting exposure counter is a reason to go out and buy a camera but you know it goes to show that people were doing things to improve upon that original formula and in cases like the 3l that you have there they're wonderful shooters a great viewfinder does have the m3 style door so if you want to show that Cheyenne, but for anybody who can't see it, you, you still pop yeah. the bottom off like you would that's any other the, normal like that's the door. Right. So you have to take the bottom off first. You cannot open that yeah. door without first taking the bottom off. It's like the Leica. Right. What do you have there, Mark? The uh tower version is the 5L. Yeah. The 5L. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I got one right there too. They yeah. all work the same way. So you take the bottom off, and then once the bottom is off, then the door opens. And then you can see the film plane. So you still have to load it through the bottom and you still do need to trim it. You really shouldn't try and shove film in there. without. Oh my God. I gave people who shoot like a so much shit about that bottom loading. And I ended up buying a bottom loading camera. (laughs) It's really (laughs) not hard. Uh, That would be, I know Theo who's, who's in our, our blogger chat that's doing the like five camera myths. Is that Stephen Dowling is doing that? Somebody has been. I think so. Yeah. Where we're talking Uh, about like rumors or myths that people keep propagating that need to die is that bottom loading like is they're not that hard to load, you know? Yeah. You, you do need to trim it. You do, you don't need that spooey or spiggle or in Cheyenne's case. I think it's, it's the case where he was actually giving everybody a hard time, but he's actually falling in love with his camera. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So you, so it's safe to say you like your Nika then, right? Cheyenne. Oh yeah. And, um, I read I read your blog and it's really good. Um, but I just gotta disagree about like getting it for um yeah, I bought it for the looks. Cause like you Here said, there's Here lots comes. of other cameras and they all do the same thing. That's like saying you can buy an American car from the 60s that's got a V8 in it, and it's the same as a, as a Corvette. Like a Corvette's a Corvette, man. It looks sexy. <laughs> if you're gonna take any V8 car or a Corvette, you're gonna pick the Corvette. 
that's why you know you buy it right because it looks sexy and i'm okay i like sexy sexy's good yeah yeah of course you have to pay a price for it though they these they, according to paul sock they only made about two and a half or three thousand of these things which you know compared to what you said the figures for the like m3 they're very 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 rare and to get a working one even rarer my one's been fully serviced sealed, etc and yeah i paid you know like probably about a thousand australian dollars for the camera and the lens and that's pretty cheap i reckon compared to a Leica m3 with a good lens which lens is on that camera cheyenne i've got the nikkor um five centimeter f2 and yeah that is i'm holding it up i've mm. got the original lens cap and the lens it's like it looks brand new i mean I've had a lot of lenses. I do lens reviews. I'm not sure if you know, Paul, but my probably all-time favorite lens was the, um, the, you know, the 58 millimeter Biotars or that um, 550 centimeter f2.8 Schneider lens I had. It's on par with them. It's, it's just beautifully machined, beautiful to operate. And, and the incredible thing about this Nikkor lens is it's, um, it's got close focus it's a macro lens down to um, one and a half feet, 18 inches. Yeah. We've- and the interesting thing, which you didn't discuss in your review, is if you look at the top plate in the video, can you see that? It's got a little symbol like they use on ships. If you go below um, a certain distance on this lens, uh, you can't use a rangefinder. And that is the film plane. So you can measure exactly from that symbol to your object and you're measuring from the film plane so you can get exact macro photography with it so that's pretty clever that's pretty cool well that's interesting yours came off this is mine that came off the NECA the 50f yeah that came off of the camera that uh, Theo had that Theo didn't you get a NECA 3L from me or 3S 3S 3S, sorry 3S yeah this is the lens that was on that body but yours is different because yours has a black ring I don't know, like, yeah, they call it um, the black, black belt, belt. Yeah. which is like oh, sounds sexy, right? <laughs> but I don't know <laughs> if it actually is physically any better or not. I mean, there's always people that say these things, are, oh, it's better for this and it's better for that. But it just looks different. The only thing I can think practically, um, it's a bit easier to read the figures on the black. Um, and that's about it, really. But, you know, look at that camera. That's... Yeah, mine's a black one too. A lot of people say this camera, it doesn't, it's kind of a little bit resembles the like M3, but I reckon, and some people say Art Deco, but to me, it's Bauhaus. That is just completely minimalist, except for this kind of nicker kind of top housing thing, which yeah. I don't really know why they went for that. Um, maybe to deliberately make it different looking because it's sexy cheyenne right it's a corvette yeah it's but i reckon if they had just made that silver then it would be really minimalist really bauhaus but cheyenne you had mentioned paul sock and i've spoken to him before too and it's funny because after i published my review he contacted me and he confirmed that i said in my review that the nika 3l was a japanese only camera they did not sell it elsewhere but he pointed out that there was a sears tower variant of that camera 48 sears tower 48 it's the 48 okay yeah so yeah. he provided me some pictures i'm sure you've seen yeah. it um yeah, I have, and i yeah. think i think ira cohen was on our show last week he's got one too but they did actually make 
a tower version of that camera, but I don't know that they ever sold it though. I think maybe it was meant to be included in a catalog or no, it, it has been sold. And there are, hang on, I've got all my files here. They've like people that have got um, serial numbers on that. From what I've seen, I've seen probably about half a dozen people that have had them, that have referenced them in news, old news groups and stuff. So that they did make it and it was Have released. you ever seen a Sears catalog though that shows it for sale, 48? I've got the old Sears catalogs and... I haven't. It doesn't 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 show up, doesn't no. doesn't show up for sale. No, but I have seen a booklet, which was an instruction booklet for the Sears forty eight, and it says um, instruction book for the Sears forty eight um, camera with Nikkor five centimeter f two lens. But it's only like a very small picture, and didn't have um, uh, it didn't have a picture on the cover. It was just text. I so. See. Yeah, okay. it may have been that um, with Yashika buying Nika, that everything just got changed and um, the 3L got put by the wayside and then they yeah. wanted to promote the, the, the Yashika camera, which um, Theo's got. And I'm guessing that's what happened, that happened all during that changeover period. That's my guess too, yeah. Yeah, and if, if anybody's got like a Sears 48, um, or even the catalog. Yeah, they're pretty, I'd say they'd be pretty, pretty rare. So James Allen, welcome back. Anything new in the past two weeks from you? The only thing I got was uh, I did end up getting a Minolta X600. Oh, okay. That's their uh, manual focus with focus confirmation SLR, right? Yeah, it's pretty neat. It's uh, nothing really fancy, but I've been testing different lenses. And uh, if anybody doesn't know, it, it's, it takes the was it the series three lens, uh, the series three lens mount that has that extra tab on the back, the MD mount, but it would have come out of what? 80, 82, 83. So Minolta lens yeah. from that era. It's, right? M- it's MD mount. It's MD. MD yeah. yeah. Mike Novak has that camera and he adapts it to screw mount lenses. Yeah. He bought it. He from does. Me. He, that's the only one I've ever seen. He bought that camera from me. Oh, okay. You know, it's funny because back in like Christmas of last year, Mike uh, said he was going to loan it to me and he put it in a box and was going to send it to me. And it's, it's, I think right now it's still sitting on his dining room table. So, uh, or maybe he hired like a team of ants to like Hmm. have it walk from Fort Dodge, Iowa, (laughs) my house. But uh, no, those are neat. There was a a very narrow window of time in the early eighties where Pentax, Canon, Minolta, uh, I think Rico did it too, maybe, um, where they had these, like, they were experimenting with autofocus technology, but didn't, weren't ready yet to do it. So they made cameras that were manual focus, but they had the sensor in the camera to tell if you were in focus. And what does it do? Shine a little light in the viewfinder when you got it? Is that how the 600 works? Yeah, it's got the arrows in it. The green arrows. arrows. Okay. I've never used that exact model before, so I'm not sure, but I have the Canon T80 uh, the AL1, mm-hmm. Pentaxes was the MEF, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I know there was one or two others that were similar in that. They're still manual focus, but they use the uh, autofocus sensor focus confirmation. The Contax RX. Olympus had one. Yeah, they, they, were, they were generally two diodes. Some of them had three. Right. Uh, that, uh, the, the, the arrow showed you which way to turn it to get it to yeah. go into focus. Nikon didn't have one, as I recall, did they? 
No, uh, a Nikon, oh. that was one thing they just were not good at was they, they took a long time to embrace autofocus. And even when they did, they didn't get it right like Canon did. And I think that was, you know, Nikon had supremacy over the pro market for so long, even when Canon released the F1 and Minolta came out with the XK, nobody really made a serious dent in Nikon's, we're talking pro level right. until the EOS because Canon hit a home run with the autofocus in 86. Uh, yeah. They, they built the, they built the lenses with the motors in the lenses, yeah. which was a double-edged sword for them because they, they basically abandoned all the people that had FD mount bodies. Right. You know, that, uh, so, and Nikon refused to do that. Yeah. They, they had to make the, 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 the mount to work with older product and newer lenses to work on the older bodies. And when they did release, I, I believe the first Nikon autofocus was the F501. No, the North America, the 2020. Yeah, the, yeah. Well, it was called the 501 overseas. That model, though, even though it did have autofocus, and it was good enough, but it was certainly not good, good pro-level good. No, it was a cam drive. Right. First, the first real autofocus camera that Nikon made that a pro could use was the 8008. And when did that come out? What year was that? That was a game remember? changer. Uh, gosh, early 90s, mid 90s. Um, but the 8008 was, was the first photojournalist camera. I mean, it, it really was... Uh, it was durable. It used AA batteries. The, the focus was still cam focus, but it was, uh, it was very quick to focus. So you've spoken, Paul, about the 8008 a number of times. So it's, I mean, it sounds to me like you're pretty fond of that camera, right? It was great. It was great. It was the first camera they had that had rear curtain sync. I mean, it did all kinds of cool stuff that, that uh, happened in the body rather than happened in the flash. Uh, and it was, it was also extremely reliable. I've seen those cameras. There's an 8008 and then an 8008S version. Do you mm -hmm. remember what the difference is? Yeah, the 8008 had shutter speeds that went in increments of a half stop. The 8008S went in a third of a stop. It was also slightly quieter, though that was, uh, that was really fairly minor. It, was, it wasn't that much quieter. Isn't there a Nikon SLR from a similar era that's super quiet, but it's terrible to use? Did, did we have a talk about that before where there was a model that you said is one of the quietest SLRs, but you hated it? Maybe seventy, which I really, really, I hate with the, with the heat of a thousand suns. I mean, it's, it's just a really, it's a truly a nasty camera. 70. All right, let's take Switch, I, um, we are the F90X here and the F70 in uh, right. other parts of the world. Yeah. Just, just to confirm, just to back up for a moment, the F401 is the, N40004 and the F501 is the N2020. That's typical Nikon numbering system for you. <laughs> yeah. It was confusing. And, and before we get any anti Nikon people, uh, Minolta did the same thing too. There were, it was actually common back then to release similar or identical cameras, but with different names in different markets because there was a huge, they called it gray market where. They weren't counterfeit. They were legit cameras, but you would get some American retailers who would import cameras from Japan. Is that correct, Paul? They could get them for cheaper right. than yeah, they, they could were, get them? They, they called them parallel imports in the U.S. And uh, they were primarily film wholesalers out of New York that would you know, bring in a, a load of cameras. And, uh, and Nikon fought it, and, and Canon did as well, 
by by making different model numbers, but they also refuse to repair them. So right, yeah, and still Nikon still does. If you have, I just sold an eight a Nikon uh, D850 that belonged to a friend of mine, and and I had not realized that that he had bought it overseas. He bought it actually in Taiwan, and uh, when I I was selling it for his estate. And when I went to register it, I wanted just to verify that it was a U.S. model. And it turned out it wasn't. So that's it's very risky because Nikon won't repair them, period. I mean, they won't they not only will not warn him, they won't fix them. Yeah. So you're you're on your own if you have uh, even if uh, you like proved with a receipt, maybe like I was on. Vac- if you it, it, at one point, if you could prove to Nikon that you had actually bought the camera overseas then they would treat it as a worldwide warranty and they would repair them for a particular time. Then they stopped doing that. So now if you have one of those cameras and it requires service, you actually have to send it to Japan or to yeah, where- Yeah, that used to be big business here in Australia, getting the gray, the gray imports specifically for that reason, uh, because we could buy the cameras much cheaper from the US and have it sent here than locally. And, but the, the risk you were taking was basically you know, repair work. If something came up in terms of a warranty piece of work, um, you, you, you know, unless you could convince them that you bought it traveling, which yeah, you're right, Paul, they stopped that as well. You're screwed. Yeah. Well, some of the New York mail order houses, uh, for example, B and H back when the gray market was, was uh, very common. Uh, B and H actually sold both. And when you place the order, they would say, do you want the U S model or do you want the, the European model? So they would give you the option. And it could be several hundred dollars less. I bought my F70 that way. Yeah. I mean, it, it was it was very common. And the, but then Nikon came to them and Nikon actually had a policy that if you were a, a U.S. dealer, you could not sell the uh, gray market product. If you were, they would take your dealership, uh, wow. which was a big deal for B&H because, I mean, yeah, they, I mean were, they were just as important to Nikon as Nikon was to them. So they they went away from that that. Uh, policy you know what's interesting though and we're gonna get slammed on this we started off by talking about how canon was so much better with autofocus and the eos model and and then deep dived into nikon models <laughs> afterwards which doesn't help our case in terms of being nikon fanboys <laughs> you know we don't even have robert here this week it, it keeps happening you know, i came out with the first autofocus lens was chin on i think it was 88 and um you see them occasionally they come up for sale and they're still working and i always thought well, I'd be really curious to like get uh, the first autofocus lens and try and t- try it out, like and see what it was actually like. Apparently, like it was a really, really good lens. Chinon made great lenses. Um, and um, I forget which mount it was in, or there was M- it was PK. I think it was Pentax. Yeah, King. yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's Rico right. Yeah. That would have been. It would have been a lot older than eighty-eight. That would have been way. Rico had the same lens. It was on the CP nine camera, I believe, but. Uh, they had a a, a, a a I don't know how you describe it, sort of a, like a, a circular mirror uh, beside the lens. Yeah, it was very big and bulky. Yeah, and it was very, very slow to focus. Yeah, I bet. Very That's slow. What I bet. Tedious yeah. to use to focus. Okay, there you go. Well, that, that puts that idea to bed. <laughs> but optically, optically, they were very good. I mean, there was nothing wrong with the lens as far as using it. It was just... Uh, uh, you know, it wasn't a good autofocus lens, but it was a good lens. Hmm. Mark Faulkner, anything new from you? Um, you usually have some cool stuff. 
sadly, I have not really purchased much in the last month, unfortunately. No. Um, have you gotten out shooting all anywhere? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now that I'm back in the office a couple of days a week, I uh, walk around D.C. and take some shots. I just have some roles sitting downstairs uh, developed that I need to scan in. So, okay. Uh, I think my next purchase will probably be one of them later, like the F3 or the F4. Um, kind of lean more towards the F3 just for the more manual options, I think. Uh, that's kind of next on my hit list. Yeah, I did. Uh, when I visited Paul, you gave me a roll of Kodak Veracrome Pan and one... I'm sorry, in um, in 620 that expired in 1948. And wow. uh, I shot I shot that in a Kodak Duo 620, which is like their half frame camera. And I metered it for about a 25 speed film. I think VPAN was originally 125. So um, I thought I would I didn't want to go too slow because I wanted to shoot it handheld. And I just gave it a few extra minutes in the developer and it came out pretty good. I was, I was impressed. That's I know we've talked, about, we've talked about shooting, you know, expired rolls of film. There are certain types yeah. that just last a lot longer. That's like the magic. Yeah. Veracrum pan. It's like a magical film. Yeah. I've used the stuff that you sold me, um, Cheyenne, the, yeah. the 127. And that was yeah. just by the late sixties. And that, that yeah. didn't have to do much to it. Actually. It just, just worked. Yeah. And and I did remember to replace the tape because it was all messed up. Like so when you shoot old roll film, the the paper oh, yeah. is taped to the backing paper. And in most yeah. cases that tape becomes brittle and it's no yeah. longer holding the film to the paper. So if you shoot old roll film, it's it's not a problem for 35 millimeter, but if you shoot any old roll film, 127, 120, 116, whatever, uh, you gotta go in a dark room unravel it enough until you could feel you've reached the beginning of the film and see if that tape is still on there. In some cases it is and you're okay. But um, if it feels like crunchy or you're at all doubting yourself, just don't try to remove it. Just get a new piece of electrical tape or gaffer's tape or hell, even painter's tape would probably work. Just something and overlay it so that it stays attached to the paper, then roll it back up and then load it in your camera and you'll probably be okay. Yeah, good point. Because I've had that happen before and I know other people on the show have too where you you don't do that and that that tape just comes loose and, and it, it always jams. It'll just jam up the camera. Yeah, that's a bugger. It probably won't hurt the camera, but you'll ruin the film. Yeah. But I was impressed. I got a couple of more goodies to show you guys. Sure. So we were talking before with Jess about the Diana. This is the Ag for Isoly 3A. Now, this is the grandfather of all Diana cameras. Like the Diana was copied from this. It was actually wow. copied from the Isoly 1 which was really, really basic. This is really interesting. This is the last model, the 3A, and it comes with an aperture. Normal lenses were really, and the shutters were like super basic, like 200 speed. This got a 300 speed shutter and a 60 millimeter F3.9 lens. So that's the equivalent of um, 39 millimeter F2.2 lens in 35 mil. Um, it's got like a single coating. It's pretty basic, but 60 millimeter on a wide angle on 120, that might be a nice little travel camera. So I'm going to write an article about that yeah. and shoot some film, try it out. It's the grandfather of all Diana cameras. So that's, that's kind of interesting. And Agfa made good lenses. Apparently this is the Apatar. This is a good lens, but that 
is that one, the really, really good one, which I ordered months ago and has just turned up, is this is a really cool camera. This is the Texa SR. Um, and um, I know that Mike knows about it. I know Theo knows about it. But the rest of you guys probably never heard of this. This is actually like a rebadged Seagull 203, which was the Chinese copy of the Zeiss Iconta. They made it from, uh, the Seagull was made from like the 40s uh, up until I think like the late 90s. And this camera was made in about 1992, 1993, up to about 2000. They made about two, two and a half thousand copies. And it's got a Minolta, reputedly, a Minolta lens in it. So um, it was kind of a bit more upmarket. It had, it's got like a wind lever. The Seagull had a metal one. This has got a plastic one. It's kind of pretty cool looking. Um, it's like a brand new camera. It's really weird. It's like all the vinyl's brand new and the badge is brand new. But really, this is like a Seagull. It was made in like the 40s and the 1950s. But it's got a Minolta lens in it. It's got 6x6 six and 645. And it's got little film gates in the back um, to do the 645, exactly like the Mamiya 6 that I've got. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited. I haven't shot this as it just turned up yesterday, but it's a pretty, pretty cool little camera. And it's got a pops out and the bellows, um, like all seagulls. I don't know what it is. It's kind of rubber and ap apparently they're like indestructible. So no bellows leaks. So if you want a meat cheap, medium format camera, a seagull, pretty interesting history with it as well. So there you go. That's uh is that the model called the Senior, the Texer Senior? No, this is the, well, this is SR. Okay, so the Texer XR. That's, that's what yeah. he's talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they just made it up. The name. Have you ever held the Seagull Two Hundred Three Cheyenne? A real, a real. Seagull? I was gonna. I was. I wa I wanted to buy the Seagull Two Hundred Three, um, the very early model, but they're really, really collectible in Japan and uh, um, especially China. Because the very first model of the Seagull actually had Zeiss, Zeiss Jenner lenses in it. Like it's not really well known or everything, but the very, very first model of the Seagull had Zeiss glass in it. Every model after that had Chinese glass. So I have not, I don't, have not held one, but this is pretty much identical um, except for the um, plastic lever. Everything else is the same and the lens. It's obviously got some design. You know, you can see that Texa SR. And, but effectively, mechanically, it's a Seagull 203. So pretty interesting little camera. And um, $130. The Seagull 203 was originally called the Shanghai 203. Is that the one? Uh, the Shanghai 203 was the one I was after. The With Shanghai the 203 okay. is the one. Yeah. And I actually, I had, it's like one of those stories of like you're hunting for cameras and like you're, you, you bid on it or you find it and the person sold it two or three days ago. I just kept missing out on it. And I was like, saw the Texa SR and it was $130. I'm like, uh, screw it. It's got a Minolta lens. I'll get that. So I still would like to get the original Shanghai 203 because it's got the Zeiss lens in it. And I also like the Shanghai name, like the, the, the graphics on the top is really, really cool looking. It's very... Chinese 1950s kind of vibe going on and I always thought one day it'd be nice to go to Shanghai and shoot Shanghai on a Shanghai camera but 
God knows when that's going to happen with COVID. Now, I stepped away for a quick second, so I'm sorry if you mentioned it, but that camera uh, does dual format too, right? Yeah, I did mention that. Yeah, did that. absolutely. Okay. Six, by, six by six and six, four, five. Of course, only got a red window in the back, but it's got the little, uh, I'll show you, it's got the little, it's got the little slide lever. So you can open yeah. and close that. So even with modern fast films, it's still pretty good. I mean, for someone who wants to get into medium format and doesn't want to spend a lot of money, they're not really, they don't really know about folding cameras. You know, you can pick not this, the X, the, the Texa, it's a collector's item, but you can pick up the Shang, um, the Seagull 203 really cheaply. And I don't know, like the build quality, it's not fantastic, but no, it's, it definitely, that's the reason I was asking if you had one, if, how it compared to, compare. to the Texer. Yeah. Yeah. I would like, I would, I would still like to get the Shanghai 203, but um, they're very hard to get. And mostly in Ch China, it sells on Taobao and Taobao is yeah. really, really hard to navigate. And I have to get Chinese friends to like buy stuff for me. And it's just a monumental pain in the butt. So I haven't got one yet. They made a version of that camera with a hot shoe. So if you're looking to get oh. a less a less old version and you're just uh -huh. looking on eBay or something, if you see a Seagull 203 and it's got a hot shoe, then it was made in the 80s. And yeah. while, while that won't guarantee it works, it's at least not as old. Well, I only really want to get the Shanghai 203 because it's got the Zeiss lens and it's got the Zeiss glass. Yeah, so that's um, that's my that's my recent haul. So cool. yeah, I'm really yeah. really happy with the Nikkei. Very very happy. Awesome. I will say I did actually I forgot I did pick up one. It was a Konica two that actually works this time. This is like my third attempt at a Konica two, and now that I said that, it'll probably break. It'll break with a roll through. It. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I picked up. Uh, I'm I'm gonna butcher the name. The Soviet, the Drug, the friend which is like a Zorky with the bottom trigger film advance. And uh, supposedly it worked. I got it, fired it off a bunch of times, worked fine. I was like, yeah, this is pretty nice. You know, so I put a roll of film in it, eh, jammed, I'm like crap. <laughs> I took the film out, still jammed, I'm like crap. So I put it on the table, swear to God, next morning came, picked it up, started firing again. I'm like, oh, okay, maybe it just, I did it wrong. So I put a roll of film in it it jammed again it's like well oh, i have my... a working camera that will only work when it doesn't have film in it so uh good luck hopefully you have better luck with that camera mark is that 35 mil the camera you're talking about or 120 it's 35 millimeter it's ah, like a zork okay. i haven't dug deep into the history of them yet but you'll see them labeled as zorky 7 and they never made a zorky 7 so i'm not sure i'll learn more about it because i typically don't do a lot of research on a camera until after i've really played with it uh so maybe i'll learn more later but perhaps it was going to be called the zorky 7 and they just changed the name but it's the most common english i don't know how to say it in, in russian but the most common english spelling is d-r-o-u-g which translates to friend, but it's a neat, I mean, it's a, like a thread mount, you know, it uses the same lenses as the other Zorkis do too. It's got a nice clean interface. doesn't have a, a top wind. It's got the trigger wind, like the Canon VIL does, um, you know, where you could with the camera to your, I don't have it handy. Otherwise I'd show you, but with your left hand, you can keep pulling the trigger to advance the film, fire the shutter, advance the film, fire the shutter. So it's, they're, they're pretty neat, but, um, I wish you luck. Yeah, they had, the, they had the Canon. What was it? The Canon with the bottom wind. And it had like a little, um, like a little knob, like a hand grip you put on the bottom to use with that. that That's the VIL. Cool. Yeah. Theo, that you looks... have one, right? Isn't yeah. that the one you have, Theo? 
Yes, it is. Um, yes, I've got the VT Deluxe, actually. The VT Deluxe. I'm sorry. I, yeah. yes, I was saying that's the wrong the one, thing. That's the one I have as well. It's a pretty cool camera. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great camera. The original Canonet. It, it, we, we call it today the Canonet 19, but back then mm-hmm. it was just the Canonet. Also has that exact same bottom trigger. So if you mm-hmm. want want to get into bottom and and honestly for anybody who's never seen one or handled one before the bottom trigger cameras actually are quite nice to use it's a it it doesn't make sense until you're holding it because i remember theo you had ordered yours and it hadn't arrived yet and you were like questioning well am i gonna like this i'm like it's it's very comfortable right it is very comfortable but it's also a little bit annoying because i kept but that's more muscle memory than anything else rather than actually uh the ergonomics of the camera uh, I would forget to pull out the lever and I'd be, you know, my thumb would be going looking for a phantom. Yeah. A phantom uh, <laughs> forward one. So. Rico might have had one before the Canon. They did. They had the 500 and they had one called the 519. I have the 519 and it is on the bottom, but it's a little different because it actually swings forward. It swings and forward, right. It's, yeah. it, is, it is a similar motion. But where the Canon implementation of it is very similar to the Leica Vit, yeah, where it's linear, it you're, you're sliding yeah. it on a track, yeah. and the Droog is the same way. You're you're doing a linear. I think there's a cord you're actually pulling. Yeah, the Leica Vit was a chain. The chain, uh, yeah. yeah. But Rico's implementation, it, you're, it's actually it's axial, so it's hard to describe without handling it. But it's the same motion. It went when forward. You, it, yeah, it goes forward in like an arc a little yeah. bit. And there's actually a shaft that you're rotating, which I don't know this to be true, but it seems like that's more reliable, less likely to break than a chain, maybe not. You know, it seems like there was a very narrow window of time when those bottom sugar wine cameras were popular. So I don't know that there was enough sample variation to determine what, what do you have there? Better than a string. I've, got, I've got the back set, the super pack set. We talked about this in another episode, but I think, is it more like this where it's a bit more of a... Yep, it's exactly yeah, like that. Yes. Yeah. See how it, it comes forward? Your your left index finger, as you're swinging it, is actually swinging out a little bit, yeah. right? Compare that, Theo, so to pulling, your Canon, yeah. where you're just which moving straight, in a straight, straight line. Yeah. Ergonomically, which which works better, Theo? You got both. Yeah, I haven't actually shot with this, but I think I'll, I'll actually like this better because you don't actually have to pull... This great big lever out under the camera. Um, it's 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 quite handy just being there where literally you just stick your, your finger through. But obviously it's chalk and cheese. I mean, the, the super pack set's not going to be anywhere near the quality of the, the no. Canon overall, though. But I will say the one advantage the Canon and their method is when you don't use it, it folds up entirely into the base. Whereas the Rico, it, it still folds, yeah. but it still sticks out. Like, so you stick that in a bag and it's constantly getting snagged on things. Are you still able to advance the film when it's on a tripod? Yes. The, the, with the VT Deluxe, you can actually manually twist, use the, the slow wind on it as well. It does give you that option. Uh, so you do, with this one, I don't think so because I cannot see anything else that you would actually use to, to bring the film across. But you wouldn't have the same problem because That's cool. I've the never tripod tried that on mine. wouldn't interfere with it. That was the big flaw with the first Canon Flex, which had that same trigger, but it interfered with the tripod. So yeah, they, they tried to sell it with Canon because I found an old ad, but they were actually trying to sell it as yeah, you can you've got the option of using the the old fashioned you know the old fashioned wind 
to, to bring it across for situations where you needed silent mode. So they tried to sort of spin it as a benefit. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love those guys in marketing. Yes. The Practica 4 and 5, it, it's not a trigger. It's a, tri- it's a normal lever on the bottom plate, but you had a wind lever on the bottom and a knob on top. So it's, it's, it's similar to how Theo was describing it, where you can choose to wind it on the top or the bottom. Yeah, Theo's pulling out his cannon. Yeah. So this is this is using the, the bottom lever, which folds in on itself. Yeah. But you can actually um, twist this. I mean, obviously, it's spinning freely at the moment. There's no film in it. But you can use this to, to advance it. Yeah. I almost bought one of those. I was tossing up, tossing up with getting one of those cannons in the knicker. And, wow, the knicker's just so sexy. I have to say it again. I was going to say, didn't Voigtlander make an add-on for the R2 that also gave a, a trigger wind, I think? Um, maybe. I'm not sure. Yes, they did. Yeah, Voigtlander made one for the uh, for the R and R2 because they made the camera in olive drab, and they, they made the winder, the trigger wind, in both. Okay. But, uh, I, I actually had a couple of those personally that... Uh, that I shot with. They were quite nice. Yeah. So like military, you can use them with the gloves. Yeah. 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 I'd like to get one of the triggers for the R2A and see how that works. Well, I can't believe it. We've, we've gone through this episode really, really fast, but we're at the hour and a half mark. Uh, we haven't heard a ton from Anthony at, at some point he was driving in his car. So I'm happy to see he's made it safely back home, but Anthony, how uh, any, any new pickups or any new adventures from you? It's been the week of experimenting with one, one, six and six, one, six. I got a, Super Iconta and 616 and the Cookerette and, and 116 and uh, been experimenting with shooting 120 film in the both and uh, getting some really interesting sort of pseudo panoramas out of them. And, you know, I was kind of worried that I would need to do, uh, you know, all these like you read about online about all these different adaptations about creating flanges so that the film lays flat. Uh, but what I would simply do was using a dark bag or a dark room. Uh, roll from 120 onto 116 spindles and uh, then just run that through the cookerette, which has that that cartridge where it pulls out and loads in and it has its own guides that did a really, you know, know, 100% accurate job of holding the film flat, apparently. And after I did a little bit of a comparison with some old uh, Veracrome Pan 116 backing paper and marking out my numbers, I was able to get accurate uh, no overlap, full use of the roll of film. So I'm, I'm like, I'm really kind of uh, uh, happy that I've got like a, a working man's poor, uh, almost six. Well, it's it's a good panorama. It's like it's like six by eleven. Well, six one sixteen would have been six point five centimeters by eleven centimeters. So if you're shooting that on one twenty, you still have the eleven centimeter width. Right, so six by 11 by six by 11. And then you probably, you get the rebate. The frame numbers overlap a little too. I imagine yeah. you can either keep that in or crop it out. If you want a little more panor- panorama, it's been, it's been a fun, it's been fun to play with. And, the, and of the two, I'm actually enjoying the Cocorette the, a little bit more. I thought I'd be really much more obsessed with these super Iconta, but the uh, Cocorette's got some, some really cool features. It's really easy to use and it's 93 years old. Yeah. Yeah, they nice. made a they made a like a Luxus version of that. It's a friggin' sexy looking camera. I think it had yeah. brass with crocodile skin. It just looks like you wanna 
that looks like a cool thing to shoot with. Yeah, I think Novak has the Lexus version. He does. This one was actually on, on, on the auction. It was advertised as a Lexus version, but it showed up as uh, it was kind of kind of ironic. It actually had a uh, internal sticker from the original seller in Amsterdam, and it was the seller's name was Lux. <laughs> so it was it was a Lux version, not a Lexus. Gotcha. Theo, you you picked up a few more auctions, right? Not eBay. I, I but did. Like- yeah, I got busy on the auctions again. Um, it was uh, some local auctions here, which uh, Cheyenne also sent me a link to, but uh, I wasn't a, going I'm to. I'm an enabler. But... Sorry, buddy. Yeah, yeah, mate. <laughs> but um, um, I I picked up a uh, Franca Rollfix 2, which is a 6 by 9 folding Very camera nice. with, nice. with yeah, a uh, rangefinder, but it's uncoupled, I believe. Yeah, uncoupled. So, yep. Yeah. So that, that's got that a, looks... that's got a rodent stock trainer, right? That's yeah. correct. So yeah. I'm quite quite looking forward to receiving that. Yeah. The only better triplet than that is the Schneider made a triplet. God, I forgot what the name of it is. The Radio Nar. Um, oh, it's just I need more coffee. No, I can't remember. Is it the Radio Nar? Radio Nar, yeah. The yeah. Radio Nar is like the best triplet ever made. And the rodent stock is just a touch below that. They're both really, really, really good triplets. Incredibly sharp, fantastic for shooting. Black That's and great white. because that means both you, you and Mike are giving me the same message. So that means that there's some stop yeah. into that in, in into that yeah. whole um, that piece. But um, so that so I'm quite excited to get that. I'm not sure if it's got the the um, six by four five option at the back uh, because right. obviously the, I couldn't see that. But hopefully, but it apparently can shoot both. I also picked up a camera that Mike's never held, you know, believe it or not, and it's called the Costa 2A, which is a Italian like. Well, they, they're calling it an Italian like a copy. So I'm um, I'm quite keen to try that out and see what that feels like. But I'd never heard of it beforehand, to be honest. I'd, uh, and that's the option I sent you. Yes. C L O S T. I don't remember seeing that. Yeah. Sorry, mate. <laughs> I got in there first on that one. And, oh, that's all right. uh, there was a camera that I asked Theo to try and get for me, but it just went crazy. It just went. It was the Ensign Commando. I, I, those are really neat looking cameras too. Yeah, six by that's six. a really good. That's a really good camera. Yeah. But it yeah, went that, for. That sort of just went a bit much for what we were going to put through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and the other one I picked up was the the original um, Mamiya U, the one without the autofocus, which was buried amongst a whole bunch of other compacts in that's there. That's a cool little so, camera. Yeah. So I'm quite pleased with that. But I do actually have a, um, and I'll probably show you those a little bit more next next episode because I haven't actually received them yet. But um, I, I do have a bone to pick with Anthony though, because through the airwaves, somehow his problems with the, uh, with the um, Rolly 110 cameras where they just won't wind on has transferred over to my Voigtlander uh, A110EL. Uh, Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. My, my Voigtlander works perfectly fine. I never did get a single one of those Rollies to work. Five different new-in-the-box Rollie 110s. Could not get a single one to work. I do get this to work, but it may, every five frames or so, it will just get stuck, and I would have to attempt um, exposing it about you know 10 or 15 times before it will then move on. Oh, wow. So the interesting results. I've got a roll of Metropolis in there at the moment, so... Um, even though I think I've shot probably a hundred frames, I'm up to frame fifteen. Yeah, bad luck with the one tens, I guess. Mm. Yeah. 
I mean, the only 110 that I've tried recently, well, other than my my Voigtlander Vitaret 110 works perfectly fine, but the uh, had a chance to run a roll of film through the, the Minox 110. And that is probably the coolest 110 that I've shot yet because it has a working rangefinder patch. And then it's got full manual control over uh, shutter and aperture, or you can do aperture priority on it. And I got what are like you a working complete on roll of just perfectly exposed in focus. And it's just, it was so nice having a 110 that wasn't, it's as small as it is. because It's as small as that Voigtlander is. Uh, but, uh, you know, having the ability to not have to just do scale focusing, but actually having a rangefinder patch was really fun. Uh, it allowed me to, to, to do experiments with like close up works with 110 and trying to get different like out of focus backgrounds um, by playing with the aperture and then the close focusing on it. As, as far as like a, a 110 that's like actually a photographer's tool, uh, the Minox is by far the best 110 I've ever shot. The Canon 110ED sounds similar to that too. It's another one of those candy bar format yeah. 110 cameras. It's got a coupled range finder. It's got an F2 five element lens. Um, I think it's got aperture priority AE. Yeah, so they there was a small number of like capable full manual control or maybe that one's not full manual control, but it's some manual control and uh, with a range finder. Do we even dare to ask Jess what she's managed to get new? No, no, I don't. I don't have any. I don't have any. I haven't bought many. I'm working on. I'm working on something that's not very exciting. I'm working on this Exacta Twin TL. I just find it really cool how you can, like, it has a shutter button on both sides. Either shoot from this side or shoot from that side. So. Oh wow. Yeah. Is that the one that was made in Japan? Made in Japan. That's correct. Made in yeah. Japan. Is it Shaji? Shaji or something? It's called something. Yeah, I just, I just remember Ihagi. like, yeah, Ihagi. 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 Yeah. yeah. They made a version with the with the bayonet mount, which is the exact real bayonet mount. They only made that mount for two different lenses. And then there's, mm -hmm. I have, I have both versions. There's a screw mount version too. Ah, uh, yeah. I think this is the bayonet mount. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was, I was gonna try and buy the shoot, uh, yeah, the screw mount for a while. Mm -hmm. Have you used the lens? What lens do you have on, on yours? They're all, it's the same lens on both. It's called the Exact Tar Auto 50 millimeter F1.8, but it's a Japanese lens. Oh, I have lens. the F1.4. Oh, really? Okay. That's yeah. far less common. And yours is the bayonet? Yeah, the bayonet. But I just, yeah, I, I've never, I haven't used it, so I don't know how good the lens is because, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. it saying 1.4, it doesn't really mean anything. It's a, it's a pretty basic camera, but that is an excellent lens. Yeah, no, not not many new things. I'm trying not to buy anything. Cameras seem to just like fall out of the sky. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll put on our umbrellas, and I hope none of us get a concussion. So I'm gonna, go, I'm just gonna get people to stop sending me links to auctions. Yeah, Cheyenne, yeah. just stop it, guys. Just stop it. It's, it's, it's a sickness. All right, guys, this is a fun episode. Uh, I want to thank everybody for coming. James Allen, as always, Jessica. Uh, Mark, Cheyenne, it's good to see you back after a long absence. Andrew Smith, I, I can't remember. Have you been on the show before or was this your first time? He said it's his first time. I could read his lips. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, thanks, you guys, for coming. Uh, I appreciate it. We'll be back in two weeks with another exciting episode where we do our best to not talk about Nikon, but end up spending a third of the episode anyway on it. So uh, if you guys want to talk to us about anything in particular, any brands or any new gas or any questions you have, we love questions. Um, I'd like to try and get a episode together soon 
where we try to solicit as many people newer to film as possible uh, and have kind of a beginner episode. Cause while I love these uh, in-depth rabbit hole episodes, like episode 28, where we spent half the time talking about rare and obscure cameras, those aren't the ones that people are likely to encounter all that often. So um, we'd love it if we could hear from some people who are maybe new to film or have some questions for us and, you know, help us help you. So thank you guys all for coming again and you guys have a great rest of your week. Thank Good night. You. Take care, everybody. Bye, everybody. Um, I just like giving like a file shit because it's like it's such an easy target, right? Because like. It's like Americans and irony. They don't get British and, and Australian humor. Um, so they're like really easy targets. And like a files are the same. They just take themselves so seriously. Like the minute you just prod them, like the, the, the hackles go up. So it's like, I like Likers. I mean, yeah, I would love a Liker M3, but like I'm not falling into all that like mythology and Henry Cartier Brisson and all that shit. It's a nice camera, but the mythology, it's just, oh, man, seriously. They all drunk the Kool-Aid. They take themselves too fucking seriously.